the head of MI6 and the immediate IS threat to the UK. As I speak, the highly organised external attack planning structures within Daesh, even as they face military threat, are plotting ways to project violence against the UK and our allies without ever having to leave Syria. The head of MI6 has outlined the immediate threat posed to the UK by IS. Alex Younger, who's known as C, was giving his first public speech in the role and the first ever public speech at MI6 headquarters in London. He also accused Russia of trying to turn the Syrian city of Aleppo into a desert, a tragic outcome which could increase the threat to Britain. The scale of the threat is unprecedented. The UK intelligence and security services have disrupted 12 terrorist plots in the UK since June 2013. And MI5 and the police continue to run hundreds of investigations into those intent on carrying out or supporting terrorist atrocities against our citizens. As I speak, the highly organised external attack planning structures within Daesh, even as they face military threat, are plotting ways to project violence against the UK and our allies without ever having to leave Syria. We face a threat that exploits, exploits failed states within a connected world. So we can't just pull up the drawbridge. Instead, we need to take the fight to the enemy, penetrating terrorist organisations upstream, by which I mean as close to the source as possible. Well, our correspondent James Hurst was there. Uh, James, how did that kind of statement go down? It was, I think, the the kind of thing we were expecting to hear. You know, it goes along the lines that we've heard from government before, but it, it, you know, it's interesting to hear it from uh, one of the men at the very top. I, I thought there was one interesting uh, sentence in his speech where he talked about how the nature of work has changed. Covert operations alongside traditional intelligence gathering have taken on a renewed importance, he said. The emphasis now is not just on finding things out, but on taking action against what we find. Now, I think, you know, the assumption has always been that MI5, MI6 particularly, don't just find things out. They do take action. I thought it was very interesting that that he felt the need to emphasise that. Mm. He was very outspoken on Russia as well. What did he say exactly? Yes, I mean, you you mentioned it earlier where he he talked about this uh, idea that Russia and Syria between them want to turn Aleppo into a desert and call it peace. I thought that was really outspoken. Quite interesting that he has been allowed to say that. You know, it will be heard in Moscow. What he was essentially saying there is, look, you know, he was talking about MI6, one of its biggest weapons being its legitimacy, and he was saying that, you know, the way Russia and Syria are behaving does not have legitimacy. That, he says, risks driving people who are not allied to the government, but also not allied to uh, the terrorists of IS, Daesh, driving them into other radical groups, and in doing so creating, you know, a new monster that will provide a, a perhaps an even bigger threat, even once Daesh is defeated. 
quite quite a bleak forecast. What, what mm. else did he say, James? Uh, well, of course, one of the things I think he felt the need to address was, you know, not just the the situation in the Middle East, but a political change in the world. He he made mention of the fact there's a new president coming into the United States, and also Brexit. He said, you know, he was hoping for and expecting continuity. Uh, that he had, you know, this is a man who has clearly spoken to uh, his counterparts. He said particularly stressed France and Germany, but he's, you know, looking to build and and seems to have some optimism of continuity and things not being too shaken up by Brexit. Well, I'm joined by Sir David Omond, a former director of another of the three intelligence services, GCHQ, as well as BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Sir David, good to speak to you. What do you make of what C had to say and who are his comments aimed at? Well, first of all, I'm very glad that Alex Younger has decided to speak out uh, in this public way. Uh, It's something that the Director General of the Security Service has also been doing. And it's a warning to us. It's telling us that there are things going on in the world which threaten us here in the United Kingdom. And as the public, we ought to be aware of that. And we ought to be uh, giving our support to those who are trying to prevent it. On Daesh and and Syria, we've seen these uh, terrorists mount attacks and inspire attacks in France, in Belgium, in Germany. It's not at all surprising that they would be thinking about mounting attacks here. And for our security, we rely on people like Alex Younger and his team and those in the other intelligence agencies. I suppose he hasn't really said anything that new, but we have seen a real public face of our security services in recent months. Yes, and I I very much welcome that. Clearly, there are limits uh, exactly who the target is at any one time and the methods being used to get close to that target. These are things that should remain secret, possibly, for uh, decades and decades. But the fact that we do have public servants uh, like those in SIS and GCHQ and the security service and their colleagues in the police actively working to keep us safe. That's something we need to know about and we need to know about the techniques that they've been authorised by law to use and that's why the uh, big uh, Investigatory Powers Act, 300 pages long, that Parliament approved and the Queen uh, gave her assent to last week is so important because it puts all that they do under the rule of law. Mm. Christopher Lee, what do you think was the most important thing about Alex Younger's speech? Well, obviously going along with the idea, the fact that he's made it, um, it, it, the Director General MI5, the Security Service, gave recently a, a very detailed interview to The Guardian, for example. In the past, not always MI5's favourite newspaper, by any means. It was quite interesting the way he he laid out things which, in theory, we knew about, like um, all the agencies that are involved together to have to counter uh, uh, any terrorist threat, and the terrorist threat was being um, uh, being plotted by IS or Daesh, as the uh, Alex Younger prefers to call them. Um, at the very time that IS Daesh is under great difficulty because they are being attacked, etc. 
and he was saying that immediately they are a threat to the United Kingdom. And this is the headlines that are going to affect the people who read this and listen to it, uh, and they say, yes, it may not be new, but it is, and it will be to a lot of people, but it's a reminder, in fact, of the size of the threat, the scale of the threat. Uh, Twelve uh, actions foiled um, in, in, in three years. The other point to me was the fact that he emphasised something which, again, we sort of know, yes, of course, um, but he's laying it out. The uh, people like the um, um, SIS are taking the action upstream, as he calls it, taking the fight to the enemy. It's not a passive system. It is there to destroy. Um, Very, very important. I think the other thing we remember that he is... He is going to have to present a lot of the things that he said, as the as, as the two other directors of the intelligence agencies, to the intelligence committee mm-hmm. in Parliament uh, next year. And this is the this is the prelim prelim to it. By the way, the way, the fact that he calls it Daesh and not IS, you know, we go around formally known as IS. He says Daesh. They do not like being called Daesh. Mm. It is a pejorative term. So I quite like that as a touch. So, David, do you think there is, I mean, a significant sort of gear change in the way that uh, the security services, the secret services are working now? This idea of being, appearing to be more transparent or more reachable and, and the way that things are being said, not necessarily what is being said. I think they've all redefined the boundary of transparency. There's an inner core of their activity which must always remain secret. Otherwise, the the targets, the people who mean us ill, will simply dodge and the result will will be tragedy. But transparency over who they are, the kind of powers that we, the people, give them through Parliament their successes, uh, uh, oversight by a senior judicial commission which is being set up uh, at the moment. These are all reassuring, uh, I hope, to the public uh, that the very powerful capabilities that Alex's team and the other agencies represent can never be misused. Uh, And that, I think, is something we're entitled to, to demand, that there are those kind of safeguards in return for which we give them our full support, I hope, uh, and we must let them get on with their job. So, David, this is a thought for you. They've, he, uh, Alex Younger today told us enough, didn't he? That's all we, we don't, as a public, need to know anything more. I think that's right, and I think uh, investigative journalists play a very useful part as part of a kind of informal oversight mechanism uh, the agencies and the police service know that they mustn't step out of line and that if they were to it would come to light but at the same time there have to be sort of self-censorship there has to be a sense of let them get on with their jobs Mm -hmm. and if we expose too much of their day-to-day operational activity it will frustrate their uh, attempts uh, to uh, get arrested uh, those who mean us harm here in the UK mm. or to frustrate plots. And I think Alex Engel was making a very important point there that terrorism is a crime where possible the police and the intelligence services try to effect arrests, bring people in front of a court. They've done that very successfully in recent years. But sometimes you can't do that. And to protect the public, therefore, what you have to do is frustrate 
the plot, find ways of interrupting it, interrupting the supply chain of explosives or weapons, or in some way disturbing those who are planning an attack. And that's extremely valuable. Let's just go back now to, to James Hurst, because, James, you were one of around 30 journalists who were invited into MI6's headquarters today. What was it like inside that famous building? Um, a bit anticlimactic, but, of course, we didn't get to see most of it. You know, we got taken in by a minibus. We saw a garage uh, through the visitor's entrance, a corridor, a kind of <laughs> circular hallway um, with lifts and what have you, uh, and then into this sort of small lecture theatre, which was nicely appointed, blue <laughs> carpet, wood panelling. Uh, but you'll be pleased to hear they did have a Christmas tree in the hallway and some presents underneath. We were unable to find out what they contained. James Hurst, good to speak to you. James, thank, thank you. you. And Sir David Oman, thank you for your time today. Sit Still to come, what's the Foreign Secretary been saying about Saudi Arabia and closer ties between NATO and the European Union? The Prime Minister has been to Bahrain this week. While she was there, she announced increased British military presence in the region and spoke to the ship's company of HMS Ocean. While on board, she spoke to James Hurst. Well, I'm very pleased to be on board HMS Ocean today, to have been able to meet the ship's company, to recognise the valuable work that the Royal Navy does, as our other armed forces do, around the globe in working to keep us safe. And I've also had the opportunity to wish the ship's company a happy Christmas, because, of course, many of them will be away from their families at, uh, at that time. Uh, what the government has done is our commitment on defence, uh, commitment to 2% of our GDP being spent on defence. That's an important commitment that we have made and will continue to make. And also significant amounts of money being spent in terms of the de delivery of equipment and kit for the armed forces for the future. Uh, I'm on board HMS Ocean. Uh, I've learnt today that the new aircraft carrier, the Queen Elizabeth, will be something like three times the size of this ship. A very important presence for the UK around the, uh, around the globe, as Ocean is doing an important job for us in keeping us safe and secure. You've said you want to work with the Bahraini authorities on their much-criticised human rights record. Some will look and think, by giving defence cooperation, with no guarantee of any improvements in human rights in return, we're compromising on the British values that we ask our armed forces to defend. I think we need to understand the importance of security here in the Gulf. Gulf security is our security. HMS Ocean, uh, the other representation that we've had from the Royal Navy and the Armed Forces here in the Gulf, is a symbol of that long-standing relationship we've had. Uh, if you look at the £3 billion being spent on defence in the next decade, uh, we will be spending more in the Gulf than any other region of the world, and that's important for our security back home. I have been speaking to the Bahrainis. I've spoken to the Crown Prince today about the reforms that Bahrain has already been making, but also about uh, what more is there to be done and how the UK can work with Bahrain in the future on some of the issues that you suggest. But what's important for the Gulf states and for us raising issues with the Gulf states about reform and about human rights is that it's because we have an engagement with them and a relationship with them that we're able to do that. That was the Prime Minister, Theresa May, speaking to James Hurst. Well, I'm joined by Professor Michael Clark, former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. Good to speak to you, Professor Clark. What has Britain got in Bahrain exactly in terms of forces, people, infrastructure? 
Well, there's the, uh, this new naval base that's being built at uh, Minas Salman, which is just, just outside Manama. And that's pretty important because the uh, Kingdom of Bahrain is re reportedly paying for most of that. And it will be a, a naval facility, which is considerably upgrades what's there at the moment, which will allow big ships to come in, o ocean, of course, there at the moment. But the carriers will be able to go into there. And there's some, uh, some idea that we might even station the first of the carriers mainly in Bahrain. There's pros and cons about that, of course. It would be a great symbol of commitment, but, of course, it would also be inherently in a dangerous place and uh, if there were real problems in the Gulf, the chances are we'd pull it away in order to protect it. So there are some big issues there. But, of course, we've got um, we, we keep our, our forces rotating through Bahrain for training purposes. We've got a lot of, of joint uh, arrangements with the Bahrainis. They are some of our best friends in the Gulf. We've got good relations across the Gulf, but some of our best friends are in uh, Bahrain and Oman. Christopher, um, sounds pretty good news for the Royal Navy, this. Well, do you know, I mean, Bahrain um, was a it used to be a British protectorate. In other words, it was one that we looked after, and that's gone on from Victorian times until 1971, um, and when we all had this so-called pull-out from, uh, uh, from east of Suez. It was also a place where the whole security um, of, the, of the island, which is what is there, uh, was done by the... Mau Mau, head of the anti-Mau Mau operation, Ian Henderson. So is this direct connection between internal operations in, in, in Bahrain, the mixture of the assurances by the, any British government towards the, the royal family that we have 200 years of, 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 of sort of being mates? Nevertheless, when you think about it, uh, at the moment, anyway, the important thing is that we've got somewhere the RF can fly into. We've got mm. somewhere you can put ships in. I mean, you've got a ship going around, wandering around. Suddenly, its generators go. You can put it alongside. You don't have to do replenishments at sea, etc. And that is the practical side of it. But behind it, at the back of it, is the fact that, I don't know, um, 110 million of the 140-odd million uh, people around that area are Shias. And we are supporting, openly supporting what is an, what is an oppressive Sunni organisation. And that is the mm. difficult side that the Prime Minister has to, has to handle. Um, James Hurst did push the, uh, Theresa May on the human rights record, um, Professor Clark, and she was saying that she was looking forward to, to working with them and helping them on that. I mean, how might practically she be able to do that? Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, the Bahrainis have been involved in a sort of charm offensive uh, in the UK since uh, 2011, which is when they had the latest round of the crisis as part of the Arab uprising. And essentially, the Saudis moved in on Bahrain, came across the causeway and suppressed the uprising. And of course, the Bahrainis say, well, that uprising was a was a political problem. And the rest of the world said, well, no, it's not really a political problem. It's a it's a sectarian problem because of your sheer majority. The Israelis deny that. Um, and this is one of those classic cases of the, the logic of engagement. Is it better to really disapprove of what the Bahrainis are doing and make it clear that they're playing fast and loose with their relationship with us, or is it better to remain as friendly as we can with them and keep on pointing out that the, the longer this goes on, the worse it is for them? Do you have the answer now, course, to that, Professor Clark? Well, the, 
Yeah, well, the answer, the answer is, it's, in this case, it's probably better to remain engaged. There's no one-size-fits-all with these things. Sometimes you've got to dissociate yourself, as we do with Russian policy. Other times, I think, it will be tactically better, in the Bahrainian case, to play it very softly. But it's very hard to do that in the face of pretty flagrant breaches of human rights and a lot of noise being made, quite rightly, by the uh, libertarian uh, pressure groups who say that you really shouldn't do this. It's, it's a tough one for the government. There are two, I mean, there are two particular characters, one is Zainab Khawaja, who uh, sent to prison um, for insulting the Queen? Another as Nabil Rajab, one of Britain, uh, one of Bahrain's leading human rights people, just mm. recently uh, arrested. I'm not sure that the Prime Minister, maybe not the Prime Minister's job, is to take them up as individuals. The reality is that if you are in the centre of the Gulf, you've got to go along with what's in the Gulf. And don't forget, Bahrain's major ally is Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia has got the biggest defence contract with Britain that Britain's ever seen. And meanwhile, the Foreign Secretary has been giving his own views about why the region has so many problems. There are not enough big characters, big people, men or women, who are willing to reach out beyond their Sunni or Shia or whatever group to the other side and bring people together and to, and to develop a, 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 national, a national story again. A national story. That's what's lacking. And that's the tragedy. And uh, I've just come from Cyprus, where I've seen one example of how this can happen. And it's not there yet. And it's still very difficult. But you've got two leaders from the Greek community and the Turkish community who are trying. And they're taking risks. They're taking risks. Each is taking risks with his own community to try to bring that island together and I see that in Cyprus and I have to tell you I don't see it anywhere else in the region and that's why you've got international, you've got the, the Saudis, the Iran everybody moving in and, and puppeteering and playing proxy wars and it's a, it's a tragedy to watch it we need to, have a, we need to have some way of encouraging visionary leadership in that area. People who can tell a story that brings people together from different factions and different religious groups into one nation. That's what's missing. Well, that was from Guardian footage of Boris Johnson appearing at a conference in Rome last week. Uh, Professor Clark, it's unusual to hear a foreign secretary talking like this, flouting long-standing foreign office convention, not criticising allies in public. Yes, indeed. I mean, I think that the reality is that British foreign policy at the moment is, is on autopilot while we find out whether the Foreign Secretary can grow up or not. Um, he's entirely entitled to express those sort of views if he's a journalist or if he's an analyst like me, and what he said is not wrong. But when you're the Foreign Secretary, you are speaking for the nation, and the outside world is entitled to believe that when they talk to a Foreign Secretary, they're talking to the representative of official policy, and he can't hold to it. He's, his mouth just runs away with him. It's a very childish way of behaving, I'm afraid, and it's not doing... I don't think it's doing Britain any harm, but it's doing the Foreign Office and him a great deal of harm. Christopher, do you see it that way? Oh, I do, I do, I do, I do. The Foreign Office traditionally employs uh, classicists, um, they don't actually employ the government, of course, employs uh, Boris, who is a classicist. So I think he probably put it 
put it to us that uh, Britain has never run a proxy war. Surely not. We've been in more proxy wars than anybody else, as Herodotus, as the Foreign Secretary, would actually tell us. Mm. It was The line that struck me was uh, sunny, sheer, or whatever. I was wondering what the whatever was, really. Oh, the whatever well, that's a sign that, sorry, 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 Chris. I was just going to say, that's a sign that his mouth runs away with him, because he's not particularly well-versed in the politics of the Gulf. He understood Cyprus. He had good things to say about that. Fair enough. Um, but then his mouth runs away with him, and he can't quite find the right phrases because he's not really familiar with it. I tell you what, in January, January the 21st, they'll love that sort of stuff in Washington. Mm, it's going to be interesting times, isn't it? Uh, now, more than 60 people are reported to have been killed in airstrikes on an Islamic State-controlled town close to the Syrian border in Iraq. Witnesses said unidentified jets had targeted the centre of Al-Qaim about 180 miles northwest of Baghdad late on Wednesday afternoon. The big question in Iraq is whose air force carried out the attack? Um, Michael Clark, it, it does seem like it's very likely to be the Iraqi air force. Yes. Um, the, I mean, the preliminary uh, information we've got is that it is, and it emphasises the fact that what is happening in uh, northern Iraq and in, and in Syria is all now part of a, uh, one battlefield. I mean, you see it again in the Battle of Mosul. You know, the horseshoe around Mosul is not now a horseshoe. Nobody's being allowed to escape, um, and that's probably a bad thing. Uh, because the Hezbollah dominate, Iranian-dominated Hezbollah militias are controlling what goes on in Syria. So you can't really say there's any difference now across the whole of the battle space. Civilians, I mean, as we know, are always going to get killed in these kinds of situations. Mm. But, Christopher, um, you think there's more to this airstrike? That, I mean, they said they were targeting a mosque, didn't they? Well, yeah, it's very, it's very simple. Um, there are probably somewhere in the region of about 2 million civilians in different parts of uh, Iraq that will be in places where IS is. Therefore, they will be among the targets that IS is. Now, we have the Americans already saying, so-called collateral damage, we cannot be going along with that. The Iraqis don't see it that way. If they can get themselves organized, the Iraqi Air Force could be doing a job which the Americans actually don't want to do and may pull out of doing. The results, the consequences are quite different. But if you were an Iraqi commander, you might look around and say, Syria, well, the Russians and the Syrians seem to have actually got this thing together. And this is how warfare goes. War is not perfectly uh, perfectly executed, and I'm afraid that's what we're seeing now. Professor Michael Clark, I suppose that the future, what happens beyond Mosul um, will be the important bit, won't it? Yes. Um, I mean, we know what's going to happen now in Aleppo. We know what's going to happen in Mosul. The, the amount of human suffering that involves is, a, is an un, unquantifiable amount, but it's going to be a lot. Um, and what we're looking at now is not the IS story. I mean, the, I, the IS story, in a sense, is a sideshow to all of this. It matters to us, but in the region as a whole, what is now happening is the remaking of the northern part of the Levant, and we're going to see that in the first part of next year. So we're not likely to see Iraq reconstituted in the way it was. We are likely to see a new Kurdish state in all but name and possibly in name, and we're probably not going to see a united Syria uh, unless we see a Syria that's completely dominated by resurgent Assad uh, holding down the rest of the country. Now, this week, NATO and the European Union overcame years of rivalry to agree to work more closely together. Allies approved a series of more than 40 measures to advance how the two organisations work together. Christopher Lee, the timing of this is important. It is important because I think yeah, Europe's going through this whole sort of period of, uh, for example, we had the Italian, um, um, the Italian Prime Minister who just had to resign 
design. Um, we've got elections within continental Europe next year. We have Brexit. We have a debate whether we ought to have a European army, etc. And the point, the, it, this is the point to sort of stop, look across the Atlantic, reassure the Americans as much as you'll ever be able to, and that's not very much, that you, you're getting your act together, you're going to come up with as near as you can the 2% promise on GDP, on spending, etc. It is so important to start to go into 2017, which is going to be this crucial period of transatlantic relations with, with Putin, not necessarily going anywhere with his forces, but always the impression that he might. And then we have, for example, uh, Europol, the European Police Organization, saying just this week, just this week going, um, that IS is improving its operations mm. in Europe. That makes it terribly important that, 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 that this whole idea of European defence, whether it's NATO, EU, or how it ever works, comes together. Professor Michael Clark, how do you think EU countries not in NATO might benefit perhaps next year? Well, um, there may be a sort of push for the EU to take security more seriously, but actually um, there's not much that the EU can do, and it's got its own problems. The EU looks as if it's going into another crisis driven by what's happening in Italy, and there may well be another Euro crisis next year. So I have to say, I mean, as Christopher said, the, you know, whether it's within the NATO framework or the EU framework, European countries f will find that their security is on a downward spiral, mm. not an upward spiral. And wh in whatever forum, they've somehow got to get to grips with that. I think they all realise it, but nobody's really sure that anything positive is likely to be done at the moment. It's a very d difficult time for European security. And ju just before we finish today, Christopher, I want to return to something we were talking about earlier. This is the Prime Minister's visit on board HMS Ocean. You had a, an observation that you made about, uh, about her appearance there. Uh, oh, oh, that yeah, that's rather good. Um, I mean, many years ago, I remember them training, almost training the then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher how to approach a tank and get the best... Uh, operation, uh, to, uh, publicity operation. There's an 18 minutes charge up the gangway of a ship like, and she got it in 17. I counted the paces. The, obviously, the Navy would be training her to get aboard in an elegant way. She did it well. And that's all we have time for today. My thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFPS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe as a podcast. Just search online for BFPS SITREP. Thanks for listening. I'll be back same time next week. Bye bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.